I just wanted to be like, Croggy, let's save everything! Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the show that was almost called John Servation, the Raw Safari Podcast. Today's episode is focused on penguin conservation and science, but also with more laughs than I expected when setting up an interview on the topic. Speaking of laughs, make sure you're following along at Raw Safari on all the social medias. I've been making an effort to post more videos and stories of some of the amusing things I encounter at zoos, along with my daily animal picture. Even my podcast ads I put in my Instagram stories are pretty hilarious, assuming you think it's funny when I tell you a red panda is secretly downloading my podcast. Hey, at least there are cute pics. Lots and lots of cute pics. They almost make up for my jokes. Anyway, if you're not on social media, and trust me, in this day and age, I get why, you can still see my daily pics and listen to the podcast at rossafari.com. And don't forget, you can support all of my conservation and education efforts at patreon.com slash rossafari and by buying merch at rossafari.redbubble.com. Y'all, this episode has it all. My guest is Katie Propp, who works for Penguins International, an awesome conservation organization dedicated to the preservation of penguins through in-situ conservation as well as educational programming. Katie is also a bubbly fountain of joyous knowledge, and she shares not only information, but hope for the future of all species. And if that hope isn't enough to make you smile in these dark times, you'll also get a healthy dose of animal stories featuring rats playing basketball, penguins pooping on each other, and a fun Tamandua story. So get ready to laugh and learn with Katie Prop of Penguins International, which sounds like a spy organization, but made up of penguins. So how are you? I am well. I've been working from home, starting to go a little stir crazy being in, you know, the confines of my house. But uh, yeah, life is going on. Conservation's still happening, trying to save the world. You know, it's still happening, which is I great. Love it. All righty. So, Katie, who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do there? I am Katie Prop, and I am the Conservation Education Manager at Penguins International. We are a small nonprofit organization located in Denver, Colorado, and we just want to save penguins. That's awesome. And uh, so you're in Denver. I love Denver. It's fantastic having the mountain views and being able to go up in the mountains for summer hiking and then winter skiing. It's like the best of all worlds. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. My uh, my tour actually played Denver right before the world ended back in March, and we had an amazing time there. It was very No cool. way. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Also, super love the zoo and aquarium there. Both are, are really yeah. great. Yes, they are so fun. It's like you have to stop by whenever you're visiting a new city. Yes. Uh, for, for anyone listening who's in the Denver area, by the way, if you go to the uh, the aquarium there, you can meet a binturong named Uni, and uh, it is a really good time. I One of my favorite pictures of ever is me with, with Uni, so uh, yeah. Aw, <laughs> always a good time meeting a bear cat. I mean, you can't, you can't go wrong there. <laughs> truth, truth. Okay, so 
right off the bat, you work at Penguins International, and we will get to that, I promise. But when you filled out the pre-interview questionnaire I sent you, you mentioned that you have taken care of rats that can play basketball. And um, I'm not going to be able to pay attention to another thing you tell me until I hear the entire story. So please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That one kind of does set off a flag for most people. So I worked at COSI, which is the Center of Science and Industry in Columbus, and they do a whole bunch of amazing science programming for youth. But one of the famous things that they're known for is their rats that play basketball. So they get um, these little baby rats from the Ohio State University, and they actually raise them and use positive reinforcement training to train them to put it's like a tiny little basketball, but it's really a deodorant ball that they get out of a deodorant stick. Don't worry, they order them like from the company directly, so there was like no contamination sure, of deodorant. Sure. Um, and then uh, they actually drill little holes so that their little tiny hands can hold the little ball. And they get rewarded with Cheerios. So uh, they start out with them as babies. They have them in um, what we call the arena, the basketball arena, which is a special acrylic box um, that they play in. And they start off uh, with these... It's basically like a raised platform and we get them used to holding the basketball and they get rewarded with those little Cheerios and then they learn to put the little ball through the hoop and that they get more Cheerios. And so then slowly we start to lower down that um, that little platform till they're actually like shooting their own hoops, getting the ball from each other. Um, they're raised in groups of four, four females. And so they're kind of paired off and they learn one side of the court. So it's like, okay, uh, these two learn the left side and the other two learn the right side. So then you can kind of mix and match the pairs against each other. And it is just the most fun thing to watch. You'll have to check it out. There's several YouTube videos from Kosai with their famous basketball rats. (laughs) I've got nothing. That's amazing. That is is. the end of the interview. Thank you. It's been nice chatting. Fantastic. Wonderful. That's so cool. Um, And I can tell that you definitely spent some time in Columbus because you did say the Ohio State University. So nice job on that one. I just didn't want people to get mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So um, cool. Okay. Now that that's out of the way, tell me a a little bit about yourself. Uh, What's your education and, and career path been? Oh my gosh. I mean, every person has just such a journey with how we get into the field we're in. And and that's one of the fascinating things about zoology. So I actually got started in the zoo world when I was a teenager. They got me young. Got me young. (laughs) Um, So I was a youth volunteer at Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. That's where I'm from is uh, Chicago suburbs. So woohoo. And basically, they had this program where you would stand in front of exhibits with biofacts, so skulls and skins and that type of thing, to educate guests about the animals in the exhibit and kind of have a hands-on learning experience. Well, that's really where I started. And um, the whole reason I ended up there is because of a complaint letter. <laughs> so, so I actually wrote this letter to the zoo saying, hey, you have no program for youth. This is not cool. And they said, actually, we do. Um, and so that's how I ended up there. I applied um, and <laughs> started my career path. And once I set foot at the zoo, I knew that that was really where I was meant to be. 
So it was amazing um, being at the zoo in the summers, working my way up to being a camp counselor for summer camp, um, helping out in the Australia house with the wombats, which are oh, wow. one of my favorite animals. Nice. Um, yeah, they're so cute. I love wombats. Um, don't tell the penguins. But yeah, they're, <laughs> they're To be fantastic. fair, they both waddle, so you know. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah, that's why. Um, that's why I'm working with penguins. Um, but yeah, so it really started out with, with Brookfield Zoo, and they had so many wonderful opportunities for youth. And from there, they actually had a contest uh, for the youth volunteers to apply to be an Arctic ambassador. And send you up to Churchill to study polar bears. So I ended up winning that um, and representing the zoo, representing the youth volunteers, traveling up to Churchill, Canada, the polar bear capital of the world, freezing my butt off, you know, um, and catching mono. I, I always tend to catch illnesses on vacations or not vacations, but, you know, trips in general. Amazing. Yeah. So being up there, being in the Arctic, learning about climate change and the plight of polar bears and just how important our human actions are in affecting the planet and what what goes around, you know, and how that impacts animals, that really was the spark. Um, Robert Buchanan, one of my, my dear mentors and um, at the time, the, the CEO of Polar Bears International, he told me, wave goodbye to yourself. When we were on the plane, he said, say goodbye because you're not going to return home the same person. And he was right. I came back home and was like, all right, I'm on fire for conservation. Time to save all the animals in the world as much as possible. <laughs> so I started, studied zoology uh, at Southern Illinois University, um, got my bachelor's from there and uh, took classes doing really amazing things like catching bats and mist nets in the middle of the night and uh, going down Snake Road, which is a road in, in Carbondale that everybody knows you can go see snakes crossing. Um, and, you know, all that fun stuff of being in college and learning. And I took ornithology while I was there, um, which is a funny story because I wanted to take mammology. I wanted to learn about wombats and, and marsupials specifically. Um, I wanted to take... Um, herpetology and study reptiles but the two professors that taught those classes quit my senior year and so all that was left was ornithology and waterfowl ecology and management so I became a bird person by force basically <laughs> <laughs> and here I am with I'm sure penguins, the penguins so are glad that out. happened yeah that's great <laughs> I'm sure they are yeah so life never goes that path you you hope <laughs> you just have to roll with it yes <laughs> well, that's cool. And then what was your goal with this? Did you want to get into conservation or did you want to do like a more traditional keeper kind of job or, or what was your goal? That's a really great question. So I, like many zoologists, was inspired by the late, great Steve Irwin. Like he was my hero. I just wanted to be like, Croggy, let's save everything. And uh, unfortunately, it was like, you know, a very hard thing to, to attain, right? Trying to be a wildlife presenter or a person that was sharing communications about endangered species. So I always kind of had that communication side. I did a lot of theater growing up and improv comedy and just really liked talking to people, interacting with people. But I also really liked the sciencey side of working with animals and, and doing research. So I really had those kind of conflicting passions 
but then thought, you know what, I can combine those under the umbrella of education. So originally, it was to be like the next Steve Irwin or like uh, Jane Goodall, you know, those kind of heroes. But like Jane Goodall, she only studied chimpanzees. Like Steve Irwin, you know, crocodiles were his thing. I wanted to kind of do everything and help everything. And so um, that's why I decided, you know, to to pursue education where you truly can teach every aspect of wildlife conservation um, and animal biology. Very cool. Um, so that's twice now that you've mentioned wanting to save everything. And yet I'm pretty sure the organization you work for is called Penguins International and not Everything International. So how did you get into uh, working at Penguins International? Yes, such a great question. Really, the wonderful thing about penguins is they are all over the Southern Hemisphere. It's not like polar bears where there's one spot you can really go and see them, which is in the Arctic. Yes, you can go to Churchill or Alaska or Svalbard, but there are different kinds of penguins. And the fact that it's like you've got them in Antarctica, you've got them in Australia, New Zealand, um, South America, and uh, the Fjordland Islands, all these different places penguins live. I love the fact that I'm like drawn to going to different places and seeing animals in their native habitats. Um, and so that was one reason why I was drawn to Penguins International. The other one is as I've continued education, I've really learned so much about polar science and how the Arctic and the Antarctic kind of work together with climate, with the oceans, um, and just how all of those things are all interconnected and how um, really working with penguins, penguins are marine sentinels. They, they really do just kind of represent um, the warning flag for ecosystems of the ocean health and, uh, you know, Antarctica. So really wanting to connect all those things, because I think it's something that's really challenging for people to understand is how climate change isn't just like the melting of ice, right? It's really like a global interconnected issue. Um, and there's really so much that people can learn about it and so much to teach about it. Yeah. Awesome. That's really cool. That, that makes a lot of sense too. So um, I love how uh, not only conservation focused you are, but how science focused all of your decision has been making. All your sit, that was not what I meant to say. All your decision making has been. That's what I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I've been learning a lot doing this podcast is just um, how interconnected everything is. Like I always knew that, but now I like mm -hmm. know it and it's, it's been Definitely. really eye opening to me. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's just a lot of cool stuff that I've learned about that. So that's really cool. Uh, that that's where your focus is. So tell me a little bit about penguins. There are, like you said, there are a bunch. Um, how many species are there? There are 18 species of penguins and uh, 10 of them are threatened wow. or endangered or worse. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's not a great percentage. No, it really isn't, which is why our company exists um, to really make a difference in, in that regard of trying to reverse that, trying to have less penguins that are threatened and more of them that are protected. So uh, tell me about that. Tell me about some of the steps that Penguins International is taking to uh, save the penguin. 
Yeah, it's it it is like a complex issue, right? So there are so many organizations out there that kind of want to take a hold of those charismatic uh, animals and and put you know that that message behind them and and getting people inspired about them. So so that's really what we are about. Um, Penguins International was founded by David Shutt, who is a local Denver, Coloradan. Um, and he started the organization in February of 2017. So we're still a baby organization um, because, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to kind of build up something like this. But really, he was doing research in Antarctica and um, in the Falkland Islands. And while he was doing his research, he was actually studying gentoo penguins. And gentoo penguins, they're so cute. They actually have these little white patches above their eyes. I know a lot of people just think they're black and white. But if you really look at like all of the pictures of penguins next to each other, there are differences, I would say, for the exception of banded penguins, which all kind of have um, a, a stripe that runs along the sides and the, their breast. Uh, they all look pretty close, <laughs> pretty similar. But <laughs> other penguins, you can really identify easily. So he was studying gentoo penguins and looking at feathers and testing the concentration of mercury in feathers. And so you're probably like, okay, I've heard of mercury. It's that thing that's in like, you know, the, the thermometers that go outside that back in the day they used to do, but now it's not allowed. <laughs> that's kind of the general knowledge on uh, mercury. But what people might not re realize is that mercury is found in fossil fuels, so CO2 is the obvious one that we all think of, but mercury is also a global pollutant that we send up there because of fossil fuel combustion and industrial pollution. So he studied these feathers and saw that penguins had mercury in them. So that mercury from the atmosphere was going into the oceans. And there you go. You've got bioaccumulation, which means that that those molecules are kind of being consumed by the phytoplankton and then consumed by fish. And then the fish are consumed, of course, by the mesopredators, the penguins. And then, of course, the penguins are eaten by, you know, RIP. I feel bad for them, but they do get eaten by the, the big old uh, top predators, the, the seals and sea lions and things like that. So why this is important is because we are finding these concentrations of mercury in the oceans and that really is just solidifying the fact that the oceans are the heart of the whole earth and the oceans are what regulate the the systems of the rest of the planet i'm always talking about things that are interconnected but but really like the um the oceans are kind of circulating the heat and the humidity of the planet. So he saw this happening. He was like, my gosh, we need to do something about it. So he started Penguins International. He started going to all of the penguin symposiums and things like that and saw that there was just a gap in penguin conservation that needed to be addressed. A lot of organizations out there focus on like one kind of penguin specifically and like that's what they all work on. So we're more of an umbrella where we're working on all the penguin species. So when I say all the things, 
things. I'm like, yeah, all the things. <laughs> uh, so, so working with all of the different penguin species to figure out, okay, how can we directly do something to help those penguins, whether it's doing research um, like David did with the Gentoo penguins, or we're, right now we're partnered with Punta San Juan program in Peru. Um, the Humboldt penguins down there, they're losing their artificial or their nests. And so we're creating artificial nests for them. Um, and then you've got the, the Fjordland penguins or the Tawaki penguins in New Zealand. Um, there's not a lot known about them and they go off to sea and people just don't know what happens. So helping the Tawaki project figure out how to um, collect that data on what penguins are doing when they're out foraging and how, how long do they do that. So partnering with different organizations and kind of being that umbrella to kind of help different organizations be seen or heard, especially in the United States. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but hopefully that answers your question. No, it was a great answer. I appreciate it. Um, that's really cool. And I, I love I'm, – I'm a big fan of finding a niche and filling it. I talk about that a lot. Um, it's actually kind of what I try to do with this podcast, uh, bring the, the humans behind conservation and keepers behind zoos and stuff like that to the forefront because normally that's not the story that gets told. And that's what I'm trying to tell. And I think it's an important part so people understand – what we're doing for animals and why it matters. Um, so yeah, that's really cool. Uh, now of all the things that you mentioned to me, the thing that just pops out immediately is the artificial nests for Humboldt penguins. Tell me, first of all, why do they need artificial nests? And second of all, what are you doing, you know, for that project? Yes, it is such an interesting topic to touch on. So, Penguins have different ways of raising their young. Um, banded penguins that I mentioned earlier, they all um, tend to make their nests out of guano. So African penguins are one that you may have heard of, um, but Humboldt penguins as well. So African penguins are in Africa. Humboldt penguins are in South America, so Peru and Chile. So the these penguins poop. They poop a lot. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those wonderful biological things that they create a lot of poop, but they also live with a lot of um, seabirds like uh, petrels and things like that, that will also poop in the same area. So just a lot of poop accumulates. And so penguins being resourceful, because they always are, they decided, you know, let's build nests out of this guano. So they would burrow into their own poop <laughs> and create a little nest and that's where they would lay their eggs and raise their young. So it sounds gross, but really these nests have the perfect amount of insulation. So it's protecting those young chicks and the eggs and even the brooding parent from the hot rays of the sun, but it also is still having, you know, moisture and stuff to keep it cool in there. And it's being a protective barrier from predators like gulls and things like that, that might, or foxes um, that have been introduced, you know, that, that might come along and try to snag the egg or baby chick. So those nests that they build are, are really, really important. Um. So just to be clear, you were right that before you explained why they do it, it did sound gross. But now that you've explained why they do it, it still sounds gross. Very cool and resourceful, but let's be honest, <laughs> they're living in poop. Uh, but hey, they that's cool. That's cool. That's fine. Right. So so, so they've got the poop nests, which, which is totally 
normal. But what's happening is there are uh, farmers that for centuries have gone to these nest sites and harvested guano. And so this happened a lot so much in Africa, specifically on Bird Island, that the penguins were left with bare rock to lay their eggs. Now in in Peru and Chile, where we are doing our work with Punta San Juan program, they actually have started regulating the guano harvests with the Peruvian government. So guano farmers kind of have to make a living. So it's one of those things that it's like trying to please uh, two sides of a coin. So they have guano harvests that happen every couple of years and they actually stake out certain areas where it's like, okay, this is where you can harvest and this is how far down. A lot of zookeepers actually will volunteer and go down there and kind of help regulate the harvests. So the guano is still being harvested. So it's like, okay, how else can we help? If we can't stop guano harvesting, what other options are there? Well, artificial nests. So people have been testing and building different types of artificial nests in different parts of the world. And right now, the nests that are in Punta San Juan, um, the protected area, are made out of a uh, concrete. So it's like a half pipe. You've probably seen those giant pipes like on the side of the road or like a semi-truck, like bringing them across country. They basically take those, they cut them in half. Um, and then they cut them into, you know, sections so that you can make a bunch out of one pipe, essentially. And then they stick it in the ground and kind of cover it a little bit with some of the rocks and substrate so that the penguins can go in and burrow. Now, whether or not this is the most effective kind of nest is still something that's being researched. So saving penguins, a little shout out to them. They have been creating these really amazing artificial nests at Bird Island in Africa. Um, we're hoping to create something similar or create a different version um, or even just use what exists right creating more of those concrete nests because they just need something right now there are still so many penguins that are laying their eggs exposed to predators exposed to the high winds that are down there in South America and and the harsh weather events so just trying to get some protection out there we're working with their team at Punta San Juan program we're working with um, some some fabricators some engineers to try to get those nests up there very cool um why 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 do they harvest guano why do humans harvest guano is it for fertilizer or oh good question yes i should have mentioned that yeah it is for fertilizer so they found out poop helps things grow um and specifically penguin poop it's got that miracle grow mix i don't really know <laughs> but they they take it and and they they use it to help to help with plants and things like that and and back in the day it was like nicknamed like liquid gold or something like that, which sounds disgusting. It's like, I don't think that's the name for that. But yeah, it was one of those things that um, was really successful in the past. And and that tradition and the way of harvesting it is still a tradition for a lot of people. Interesting. I'm, I'm just learning so much in this interview already. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's no, that, that makes sense though. I know that that's constantly something that conservation organizations need to fight against is, um, people need to make a living and, you mm-hmm. know, if you can kill an endangered species and sell its pelt and feed your family for three months, yeah, kind of going to go for it unless you can have a reason not to and, and that kind of thing. So that, that does make a lot of sense. Um, that's very mm-hmm. cool that you guys are working on that right now. Uh, anything else you want to say about that uh, that particular program before we move on to something else? 
Sure. I guess I will say the other uh, side of that project is really focusing on the conservation education, which is where my heart lies. So we're creating some education programs that are going to be translated into Spanish so that they can share at the local schools to try to get more of the communities aware that they have penguins in their backyard, what those penguins' livelihoods are, and really how their actions are impacting the penguins. So I'm excited to be working on some content with them um, for those school districts, but also creating content for students here in North America to teach them about the guano problem and teach them about how really, even though humans were the problem, right, for harvesting guano, we're also the solution by creating these nests. So there's really a lot of opportunities here to teach kids that you can be an engineer, you can come up with solutions that are creative to help animals. Makes sense. And I think that's that's kind of something that I keep hearing is that... Um one of the biggest steps that we need to take for conservation is training up future generations because we're not going to change a lot of minds. People are already set in their ways. Um, what do you think is is a good way to go about that? And how important is a STEM education uh, in this day and age? I love that question because that literally what you just said is what I've heard almost my whole life of like these people that are, have been my mentors when I was a teenager telling me that my generation was that next generation to change things. And I do believe that, yes, there are some of those big wigs, uh, movers and shakers that are stuck in their ways, but I still believe that there is room for everybody to learn. So even though we are targeting the youth of today, right, um, these kids that are doing so much um, to to save the planet, I think, I think kids know what's going on. I don't think it's this big mystery of like the planet's in trouble, right? We have um, Greta Thunberg, who's just such a wonderful representative. Yeah, she's just amazing. Youth. Yeah, she she really is. And so it's like, okay, if, it's not that they're clueless. It's that we can provide them with innovative ideas and solutions. So, so I think it's important to teach really science, science literacy, I think is so important especially with the political climate and things like that. It's important to understand how science works, that it's a hypothesis that you can test, you can revise, things change, and that we need to take that and kind of learn from it and grow from it to really create viable science. And so whenever I create a program, I'm always thinking about the end in mind. I'm thinking about what is that wonder that kids have and how can they take that wonder and use it to create something that they can test out out and then maybe redesign, retest. So I think STEM is such an important thing right now in, in education. And I think specifically in zoos, aquariums, museums, we have that expertise. So why not take that informal science and make it hands-on, make it something that they can really create and build things. And it occurs to me just for anyone listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, can you describe what STEM is? Yes, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Also, some people call it STEAM, science, technology, arts, engineering, and mathematics. So art is something that I'm always trying to infuse into what I teach. So uh, the, the intersection of science and creativity, it, it, it really is something that can be worked together. Some people always think, hey, it needs to be separate. But it, it doesn't. It's something that's really important that, that kids are, are really learning and diving into. 
Definitely. And especially in this multimedia world, I mean, I'm doing a podcast, which is a little bit of art and a little bit of science. And uh, it, it comes from a photography page, which is animal photography with scientific facts, which same thing. And um, yeah, I know there are so many people who their first introduction to conservation is by seeing a really cute shirt of an animal that they like. And then they find out that, you know, 10% of the proceeds go to this conservation organization and they go, Ooh, what's that? And then hopefully they volunteer or they donate more or whatever. So yeah, I do think the arts need to have a role in science um, or, or that education should contain both. But um, yes. yeah, but I do think we need a real focus on science. Uh, like you said, in the current climate, I just, you know, I get that people have different opinions. I do. And, and that's fine. But, um, the complete lack of understanding of things that I just take for granted that we all learned uh, back in mm -hmm. school has really blown my mind. And I will tell you, I was very late to the science game. Um, I, uh, I I don't know how much you've really looked at my stuff, but I am a professional drummer. That is what I do for a living, and I act and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I that's what I focused on the entire time. Um, I I had a a girlfriend do my biology homework in college for me because. <laughs> I didn't have time for that. I had to practice and she was a science nerd. Yeah. So, you know, um, so I've been playing catch up as, as an adult. Now I'm really into it and I read a lot and I, I yeah. spend way too long studying maybe, but, um, but you know, growing up, even not interested in that, I still had such a basic, but good understanding of scientific, uh, theories and, and the process. And like you said, hypotheses mm -hmm. and how that works. And, that just seems to have flown out the window for a lot of people. And I, it, mm -hmm. it makes me really sad. It's so make, it makes me so happy though to hear that you have hope because I'm not going to lie. I've lost a lot of hope, not for the future, mm. but for the older and current, you know, adults, um, people older than, than me and, and honestly, mm -hmm. some people my age, I feel, I feel hopeless. So honestly, it's encouraging knowing that someone who works in this every day doesn't feel that way. Um, and if you have any other, if you want to give me any other thoughts on, on not losing hope uh, about the current state of things, I would love that. Definitely. So one of the things that really has stuck with me was something that I learned at COSI, the Center of Science and Industry. I always say that because people are like, what's COSI? Um, they have this phrase, which is science is for everyone. And I just love that so much because it really is. Science isn't hard. I know a lot of people think, okay, it's, you know, a white man in a lab coat at a university studying cancer. And it's like, no, no, no. Science, scientists are all different colors, shapes, sizes. They study so many different things. Sometimes they're outside. Sometimes they are in a lab coat, but, but really it just encompasses so much. And um, you know, I've always been focused on this animal side of things, but really this big umbrella of science has been so inspiring because I've been able to go to different groups and communities and teach people science, whether it was teaching an assembly of 500 students. What people don't realize is when I did that beforehand, there would be adults in the room that I would train. Um, this is for COSI on Wheels. They had these wonderful programs where you travel to schools, you do these assemblies, but you also need adults to help out with the hands-on learning. Um, so the students would come in, they'd watch an assembly, they'd all leave 
And then they would come back for these tables that were spread out around the room and do these experiments with the help of an adult facilitator. Now, a lot of those adult facilitators would be the, the PTA. Sometimes it would be the local firefighters and police officers that come into the schools. Sometimes it's like sponsored by a company that wants to volunteer in some way. And that time that I spent with those adults showing them how to do experiments, like a simple chemistry experiment, like uh, one of the experiments we did was you take an Alka-Seltzer, you put it in water, you flip it over, and it actually will shoot this tiny little canister up into the air like a, like a rocket. And just seeing these adults try this out, it's like, this isn't just for kids, this is for everyone. Like, everyone loves rockets, like little tiny rockets. So, you know, just seeing them light up and see that, you know what, you don't have to be a chemist to teach chemistry. You can really be anybody that just loves trying things that are new or having that sense of wonder. I love that word wonder because it's like something that we always think of like, I wonder why the grass is this color or I wonder why that squirrel is doing that weird thing with that, I don't know, nut. And it's like always asking these questions. And I feel like as adults, we get shut down when we wonder. When we're kids, we're free to wonder. And so it's lighting that spark in, with those adults, reminding them that it's okay to wonder something. It's okay not to know the answer, or it's okay to say something that's wrong and learn something new and then be like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really awesome. Now I know this new thing and kind of taking that with them. So I've seen that spark light up with adults and older people. And I think it's just bringing that wonder back, getting people excited. That was a really good answer. I dug that. That was very cool. Thank you. Um, cool. So let's spin it back to penguins. Tell me more uh, little flappy bird stories. Oh, flappy birds. They're so good. I love them. <laughs> it's one of those things that's like, how can you not love a penguin? I mean, anyone that's ever seen one, it's like you can't just hate that. They're just so cute. <laughs> so, so the first penguin that I ever worked with was at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. You know me, gotta love my zoos. Um, I worked in the Animal Encounters Village, which you probably have heard a bit about. <laughs> oh, I, I've been there. I, I've been to the new, new, uh, the new building they have that oh, just opened. It's have so you? good, so beautiful. I've only seen it through Snapchats and videos because I haven't made it back to Ohio since the pandemic. But it's on my list to visit my dear animal friends and actual people friends. But mostly um, the but animals. Yeah, Mostly the animals. There are some uh, key friends I do miss dearly. So, yeah, I worked there um, for two different summers while I was in college and graduating college. Um, and it's really such a lovely, tight-knit group, teaching people, again, how science and communication, you know, can go hand-in-hand hand to teach people about program animals. So I worked with some African black-footed penguins. And my favorite penguin in the whole wide world, his name was Tuna. And he was just the chonkiest penguin. Like, I'm telling, <laughs> telling you. Like, the other penguins were, like, skinny and, like, normal penguins. And Tuna was just, like, the fat penguin. <laughs> they were all named after fish. So we had, like, Sammy, Barry, Wahoo. <laughs> like, Barry for Barracuda. It was really cute. But Tuna was my favorite. Um, not only because he was fat, because he was, like, very endearing. Like, he... 
he was always like really eager when, when we were doing training sessions. So he was the first penguin that I learned how to do positive reinforcement training with. So we would do penguin swims and bring them out into the little um, acrylic pool that was in front of our old stage back on the old um, exhibit. And I would be feeding him little tiny fish, um, like... I'm trying to think of some of the examples like sardines and that kind of thing, anchovies, um, and throwing those into the water. And he would swim after them and eat them and talk to guests about penguins. And so that was really my first experience talking about penguins and being up close to a penguin. And when he would come on land, um, when he was done swimming, he actually was really bad at eating fish. Like he was fine with them in the water. But if you dropped one on the ground, he would just stare at you like, excuse me, like... (laughs) Where's my fish? And you're like, it's right there, bud. <laughs> but no, you had to hand feed it to him. So I think that's maybe why he was fat, because he, he was just endearing. <laughs> you think he'd be skinny if he couldn't pick a fish up off the ground on his own, but <laughs> it's not the case with, with Tuna. Or Toon Toon, as we all nicknamed him. Yeah. Amazing. He was a great penguin. When you were uh, when you worked uh, at Columbus, was Vowder there? Yes, he was. Such a fantastic mentor. My gosh, I learned so much about animal behavior and and training. And really, he just got me into that whole world of behavior and and how literally the environment affects the animal's behavior and changing the environment means everything. So great guy. That's awesome. Yeah, my uh, my girlfriend just finished a, a veterinary externship. At Columbus, she is a fourth year vet student at Penn Vet, and um, and she got to actually they they because she's so into behavior, they gave her a day where she just went away from the vets and hung out with Vowder and had the oh, best amazing. time. Amazing, yeah, yeah, and of course, all of the people that I got to meet at the uh, the Ambassador Village and everything, every one of them was like, "Oh my gosh, she is the coolest dude. He is the best. That is that is a man who really, really is. gets it." He sure does. And he just cares so much about the welfare of animals and just making sure that everything is an opportunity that that animal has, whether they accept to participate in the training or not. It's just, it's so amazing. And I think more zoos um, need to learn from Vowder and, and, and learn about that, that training technique that Steve Martin really um, from Florida uh, kind of pioneered. So not Steve Martin, the actor, Steve Martin. <laughs> Figured I'd clear that up, Steve Martin. I was going to um, say I didn't realize that uh, the man who made the jerk also had such an impact on uh, on training. <laughs> yes, um, different Steve Martin. So fair, fair. I can't remember the name of the the company right now off the top of my head. I don't know why my brain is freezing. Oh, Natural Encounters. Cool. I'll have Steve to check Martin that out. Natural Encounters. I'll have to check yeah. that out. Um, very. They cool. do all the bird training. They do all the bird training for, um, like, Animal Kingdom, okay. all that stuff. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so Brookfield Zoo, Columbus Zoo. Um, so far, you're just knocking off some of my faves. Uh, have you worked at any other zoos? Yes, Cincinnati Zoo, of course. Um, Literally was... my favorite zoo <laughs> away from my home area. I'm obsessed. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go back and see their new little blue penguin exhibit. It's so I'm good. Dying. Ah, I see, can't wait. When Zoe was in Columbus, I went and visited her and then of course we went down to Cincy and yeah, it was it was a whole thing. It's it's so cool. They call it, you know, Rue Valley, but it's not really about yeah. the kangaroos. It's all about those penguins. 
It's all about those penguins, definitely. So yeah, I was a, a volunteer um, interpretive keeper. I actually worked at a company called My Actions in Cincinnati. We created apps and websites for zoos, aquariums, and museums to share their environmental actions so people could like share that they recycled. And then you'd have a measurable number of the um, conservation environmental impact. So I was doing that in a in a very tiny office with a team of five amazing programmers, but like my little heart needed the animal experience. So, so I was able to volunteer at the zoo and, and work with, with Isla, the Tamandua. Okay. And, so uh, you're friends with Colleen Adams then, aren't you? I sure am. Yep. Colleen's a good friend of mine. Like all these people. How did you, we, you also how did we interviewed Johnny. This? I don't, I don't That's know. Amazing. <laughs> yes, Johnny. Johnny's amazing, and and Colleen has yep. actually become legitimately one of my best friends. We text almost every day. Oh, good. Um, yes, she's amazing. Yes, I actually she'll have them by the time this comes out. But a, a good friend of mine who I interviewed uh, for an earlier podcast is a graphic designer named Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin Nicole Design is is her company, and um, she just released uh, Southern Tamandua stickers. So <gasps> I sent a couple Colleen's way. Oh, I need some. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a very big uh, Tamandua fangirl as well. Okay. Nice. <laughs> yes. Of, yes. Big fan of them. Caitlin Nicole so, Design is her, her Etsy and Insta and all that. And it's, it's a really cute little sticker. Awesome. I love how small so, yeah. this world is. But okay. So now it you're really, just talking it, it three does. of my favorites. Yep. And then um, the last one is Denver Zoo. Yeah, so when win. I first moved out to Denver, <laughs> Denver Zoo um, is where where I kind of got started out here. So I was what they call a variable part-time educator, which means that you kind of do everything from teaching at the zoo, running their nature play area for little kids to play outside, um, and uh, going to classrooms with some of the program animals and teaching different science series and things like that. So really did a mix of still bringing program animals out and about, teaching kids at the zoo, um, and then the pandemic hit. So, so, you know, lots of things moving. So I actually um, got started with Penguins International right when the pandemic started. So I started out kind of part-time at the zoo and part-time at Penguins International. And then it was just like, whoa, full-time Penguins International as the pandemic has carried on and the zoo um, hadn't opened yet. So I still help out at the zoo on weekends and things like that for special events, um, but yeah, it's just like always changing. This environment is always changing with the pandemic, not knowing kind of where things are going. And especially with being such a small nonprofit, like we've been hit hard from COVID and uh, trying to get donations in and trying to run our penguin workshops, um, which are hour long classes for for kids. It's like, you know, trying to push all these things and marketing. It's tough when people are like, I don't have any money <laughs> or, you know, I do have money, but my kids have been on their computer all day or, you know, there's just a lot of things that are just really affecting the world that I live in and the people that that I work with and people that I care about, as I'm sure you found out when you've been doing your interviews as well. Oh, yeah. And I mean, just even um, I do a birthday fundraiser every year for Red Panda Network, and I usually make two, three hundred bucks for them. Nothing crazy, but solid. I, I think I did 40 
this year because it was right at yeah. the start of the pandemic and everyone had just lost all their jobs. And most of my friends are artists who just watched their entire career disappear. So, yeah, no, I, I Gosh, get that's it. tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the arts, too, definitely. Like, the arts, like, anytime you're doing any form of, like, interacting with the public, whether that's in entertainment or education, like, that's just where things have been hit so hard by this. So, yeah, I feel you. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on who you are, uh, nerd, but in a good way. And uh, I feel, <laughs> and I feel like I have a very good grasp of what Penguin International does, uh, Penguins International does. But what I'm wondering is, what exactly do you do with Penguins International? Great question. So as the conservation education manager, that's kind of like a loose title because I wear many hats. I've done the marketing. I've helped out with some of the um, financial side of things with creating our annual report, that kind of thing. But really what my primary focus is, is on the education. So part of uh, Penguins International's mission is to promote the awareness of threats to penguins and provide conservation education to the public. So that's that's the niche that I fill. So basically trying to create penguin-related content that can be taught um, to different audiences. So over the summer, I piloted for the first time the Youth Conservation Leadership Camp, which was designed for middle school students to learn about penguins, learn about their behavior, and learn about the Humboldt penguin plight with their um, their poor little guano nests being taken. And the whole premise of the summer was to create your own artificial nest box that could keep an ice cube from melting. So they designed all these different kinds of nests and they had to redesign it, retest it. So that was something really new and exciting that connected to a real project that we're working on. And seeing their different designs and their sketches and everything was amazing. I can't wait to teach more about that. Um, but right now we're kind of switched gears for the school year and we are doing penguin workshops, which are these one hour long programs focused on different aspects of penguins. So it's kind of a new topic each month. So that way, um, you know, those homeschool kids or, or kids that are interested in after school stuff, they can attend once a month instead of having something that's like super a super big commitment because I know people can get burned out from being on the computer. But right now, I believe that students don't have the opportunity to engage in the after school world that used to exist, right? So like after school, maybe you are part of eco club or maybe you are a part of like, we love animals club where we go around and help uh, help wildlife in need. I don't know. Those were the things that I was a part of as a child. I started pet lovers when I was like 12 or something. So, you know, it's like these clubs don't exist. So I'm creating that penguin club where it's like, okay, you want to learn more about penguins. You want to see how you could be a, a penguin zookeeper or learn more about the science that's going on with penguins. That's what these penguin workshops are, are these opportunities for kids to take a deep look look at feathers and learn how feathers work or try and experiment looking at penguin behavior by watching live cameras of penguins and seeing what they're up to. Um, or even like learning about eggs. All animals that are birds have eggs. <laughs> and what makes a penguin egg different from other eggs? So really being able to kind of dive into those adaptations or dive into those things that make penguins unique. That's what those classes are for. And that's why I hope kids like can be interested in, in that and, and become 
a deeper penguin lover have have like more of an appreciation for penguins than just like they're cute they do silly things happy feet you know there's a lot more to it that's awesome um how do you feel about the fact that penguins are, are pretty uh, you know, well portrayed uh, in the media, um, or I guess well portrayed isn't the best way to say it, but like they're definitely a, uh, there's a lot of representation of penguins in the media. And I think some of it is accurate and some of it is not. And are you able to use that? How do you feel about things like Happy Feet and, um, you know, all of the stories of little penguins mating forever that are told that aren't really necessarily 100% accurate, but also, accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they do make people like them. So where do you, where do you fall on, on all of that? I think that I'm a fan of anything that can get people interested, right? I talk about lighting that spark of wonder. If you watch Happy Feet and you are just filled with love for those penguins and that spark of wonder turns on and you're like, huh, I wonder if penguins actually dance. All right, then you've you've opened the the door to explore that and to want to learn about that. And so I think that that, you know, obviously those inaccuracies bug me. Like my biggest pet peeve is seeing polar bears and penguins together on t-shirts, greeting cards around the holidays. I'm like, no, they live on opposite sides of the planet. I've studied them both, worked with both. Like they never interact ever. So that's one of those things that it's just like, it makes my skin crawl. Like I, I can't stand it. But if it, again, if it's getting people to wonder about, okay, like would a polar bear eat a penguin? And then they start researching it and learning that polar bears actually live in the Arctic. Penguins live in the Antarctic. Again, it's opening up that sense of wonder. And so, you know, there's pros and cons for sure to both. No, it makes sense. And that's kind of my take on it too. If if people uh, find a passion through something that isn't accurate, but like you said, it makes them more interested, then, Mm -hmm. then that's awesome. Cool. That makes sense. Um, Awesome. Well, I I have to end this interview with my way that I end all of these interviews, which is uh, the Rossafari poop story. Now is the time. There are always so many poop stories. I I mean, I was debating on this because I knew it was coming. I was like, do I tell a penguin related one or a regular animal related one? Um, So I think I will start with the penguin related one first and then go to my other story, which is even ickier, if that's okay with you. The more the merrier. (laughs) Fantastic. So um, this penguin poop story started because when I was researching Penguins International before accepting my position, I just kind of wanted to know like what content they had out there for educational purposes. So I was scrolling on the Instagram, looking on the Facebook, looking on the YouTube channels, and just seeing like what they had out there. And um, one of our videos exists that is literally just non-stop footage of gentoo penguins pooping. Now, gentoo penguins, they actually have explosive poop that can travel 4.4 feet. So it like launches, it's projectile. And so in this video, there's actually this gentoo penguin laying on a nest and literally all the other penguins are like pooping on it and it's getting just massively covered. And this poor little thing like won't even move. And you're like, dude, move like you're it's gonna happen like you see the tail go up you're like no and then he gets covered again so I asked my boss I was like why why did you put this out there he's like isn't it fascinating he's like I waited with that camera to capture that footage on the island um I think that was in the Falkland Islands and I was like I can't I can't like 
that penguin needed to move. Like, why didn't you do something? But as a scientist, you just have to watch it happen and feel bad. Um, so that's my disgusting penguin experience um, that, you know, I, I can't clean my eyes enough from that. And then my personal experience, of course, is a tamandua. Because <laughs> it always is. Tamandua's have the dis- most disgusting poop. And um, you probably have heard the name of this tamandua, Tressel. He worked. Yep. He he lived at the Columbus Zoo. Well, Tressel every morning would make a Pablo Poopcaso, which was just this abstract poop art that he would just smear with his chubby arms on the wall. And so every morning it was just kind of like, oh man, like I have to clean that exhibit and like scrub the poop off. But um, this particular day he was kind of feeling a bit fussy, and so. I was putting him into his crate and he actually ended up getting a hold of my shirt somehow when I was moving him into his crate. And he was, you probably know this, but maybe listeners don't. Tamandua's have some pretty intense claws um, that are pretty long and sharp. And so um, for safety reasons, I was just like, well, um, he, he can have this shirt. So I slipped out of my shirt and gave it to him. I was like, you just take it. You know, I had a sweatshirt as a backup plan. But he ended up like peeing on my shirt and ruining it and like crawled into his crate. And like, then I closed the door and then I had this nasty shirt. It was hot out. So I was like, well, do I put this back on? Do I wear the sweatshirt? It was a real struggle the rest of the day, but everybody made fun of me for quite a long time after that situation happened. It was truly disgusting. So yeah, animals do the best stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they do. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It's been so fun talking to you and hearing about your passion for wildlife and, and your interest in science. I love that, that you have that spark now as an adult. Thank you. As I'm sure you could tell, I loved talking to Katie so much. If you were inspired by her to dive back into science a little bit more or to check out some science for the first time, there are a ton of great resources online. I also recommend googling popular science books and taking a stab at the titles listed. There are a ton of amazing animal books out there from incredible authors that manage to make science less scary and more accessible to everyone. You can also check out Katie on Instagram at WildlifeKatie, and make sure you take a look at Penguins underscore International to learn more about the organization she is working for. They can also be found at their website, www.penguinsinternational.org. Hit that lick now, Cotton Top. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. <laughs> <laughs>